Well, I think by now you know where to turn in your Bibles. I want to read again from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This account of the Lord our God speaking in response to what has taken place when Adam and Eve sinned, and he begins to question the first pair. He begins after that to issue the consequences of what their disobedience has brought upon them. But first of all, he speaks to the serpent. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray once again. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for this first gospel promise of your word. And we pray that you would help us to mine its depths, its breadth, to even mine that which it anticipates in the rest of your word. Especially we do pray that through this passage, we would see Jesus and what he has done for our souls. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In the verses that we have just read, we have the first bubbling up of a river which flows through the broad wilderness of time, refreshing every generation as it passes through. And throughout the ages, it gradually gains strength until at last it will forever make glad the city of God. At 4,132 miles long, the Nile River was widely recognized as the longest river in the world. But more recent research concerning the tributaries of the Amazon River has led many to conclude that the Amazon is indeed the longest river in the world. And there's no dispute, however, concerning what river has the largest discharge in the world, and it is the Amazon River. Its maximum width is a staggering 8.7 miles wide, and its average width is almost two miles wide. But if you only saw the headwaters of the most distant tributary high in the mountains of Peru, you would not be impressed, for it would only be a little trickle there. And likewise, if the only thing we could see were the tiny stream where the gospel first bubbles up here, in Genesis chapter 3, we would not fully be able to estimate its importance. It's our knowledge of the gospel river in its present dimensions and its future prospects that invests this first gospel proclamation with such grandeur and such greatness. We know the significance of this gospel announcement better than those who first heard it. But the mountain dwellers of Peru near the most distant sources of the Amazon, can drink and satisfy their thirst from the tiny little rills of that ancient and most highest distant source of the Amazon. 
And even so, those who lived at the time when this gospel promise was first made, those who lived when this little stream was the only gospel that they knew, they could still satisfy their soul from their crystal stream that we find here. And from the feeble stream that bursts through the stony ground near the closed gate of paradise, righteous Abel, he too drank from this water of life. It refreshed his soul, even back then, the way it does for those now who have a fuller view of God's redemptive plan. God opened up a spring in the desert as soon as there were thirsty souls traveling there. And they slaked their thirst right from the beginning from that stream and have done so ever since. What we have here is the first gospel promise. It's hidden in the first curse. And when they sinned, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. As Satan said, they would be opened, but it was only to see the terrifying results of their sin. But with this first gospel promise... They had their eyes open now in a new way, in a wonderful way. They now understood that Satan, who had pretended to be their friend, was their worst enemy. They now could see that he was also God's enemy and that God was determined to overthrow both their and his enemy. God stepped in and God told the serpent that he was determined to overthrow this enemy of the people of God. He told the serpent that his quarrel was not with man first and foremost, but with him. And in his first words to the serpent, there lie five significant realities. And we've stated them there in your outlines. As we've preached two sermons already concerning this text, I want to just go over, first of all, the three uh, points that we have made so far. And the first of these points is that we have here the serpent's irreversible condemnation. In the first half of verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And the idea conveyed by this particular Hebrew word cursed in Genesis 3.14 is the idea of banishment from the place of blessing, the place of the garden where God's blessing was. You are banished, God is saying, from my blessings. Every creature would be banished from the fertility and the harmony of the garden. But he here says in verse 14 that the serpent was banished. He was cursed more than the rest. His exile from the blessings of God were irreversible and eternal. And then we noted in the second place the serpent's conspicuous degradation. In the last half of verse 14, God says, on your belly you will go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And both of these curses are symbols of humiliation and defeat. The first aspect expressed in those words, on your belly you will go. This mode of movement now, it seems to be a picture of the way Satan moves about. He doesn't move about with the dignity of holiness, but with the groveling of a creature that has to slither around on its belly. And even so, sin is like that very thing. It slithers around. It's a degrading thing. And the second manifestation of this conspicuous degradation is set forth in those words, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And again, these, should be, these words should be interpreted symbolically. It's not that snakes eat dirt. That's not the point. 
In several places, the Bible uses the image of eating dust to express humiliation. In Micah 7.17, we read of the enemies of the Lord, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. And here's the image, therefore, of somebody that's utterly defeated, utterly humiliated. And with respect to Satan's great scheme, the cross and the empty tomb, utterly subjugated this enemy of God's people under the foot of Emmanuel. And then in the third place, in our last sermon, we took up this heading, the serpent's implacable opposition. And we read of this in the first half of verse, seven, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And here in God's marvelous grace, God declares that from this point on, there will be an implacable enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between his seed and her seed. Up until now, you see, the serpent had been on friendly terms with Eve and Adam. But God says, I'm going to break this covenant with hell. I'm going to raise up a seed that will war against Satan and his seed. And in this verse, great significance is attached to these little word seeds that's used more than once. Satan's seed and the seed of the woman. And both the serpent and the woman are to have a seed or they are to have offspring. And usually that word is used of immediate offspring. Used, for instance, when Eve gave birth to Seth and said, God has appointed another seed instead of Abel. But in a number of passages, this Hebrew word is a collective word. It means the offspring of, defend, of distant descendants even. And even though most modern translations use the plural for these references, descendants, plural, the Hebrew is never plural. It's a collective word. We speak of posterity. It's a single word, but it describes not just one person, but many. It's a collective word. And that's what we have in this place. And at the end of verse 15, there's a shift from this collective use of the word seed to a reference to a coming individual. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. And in all three of the versions that are common among us, the New King James, New American, the ESV, the translation he is rightly used. And in our last sermon, we showed that this is a right translation, going all the way back to the Septuagint, when even the Jews could see that this is referring to a coming Messiah. A single male individual, he would be the seed of the woman par excellence, and he would arise, and he would be the one that would bruise ultimately the serpent's head. Now Genesis 3.15 tells us, Therefore, that there will be an implacable enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his seed and her seed. And this enmity is a murderous enmity. Right away, Cain murders Abel. Ultimately, this implacable enmity was between Satan and Christ. And in our last sermon, we also noted that this implacable opposition, it's kept up by God himself. God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put a wedge between these people that were at peace. I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's God who steps in and sets a new order in place. He sets up two families, two kingdoms, and two opposing camps that will always be at war. And therefore, if you are part of the seed of the woman, bless God. Even though you may stumble, even though you may fall, God has assured you that this wedge is permanent. God has done it. 
He set you among the seed of the woman, and you will always be among that seed. And with respect to this implacable opposition, our text also hints that at length God is going to raise up a champion. The conflict will reach its climax in a battle between two individuals. Eventually there will be a, emerge an individual that is the seed of the woman in a very special sense. And it is this one that will do battle with the serpent. And it's crystal clear that the identity of this promised descendant, this one identified as the he of verse 15, is the Messiah. Ultimately, the battle is going to be a face-off, not just between two armies, between, but between two persons, the serpent and a champion who is yet to come, none other than Jesus Christ. Now this afternoon, it was my purpose to conclude by going through verses or points number four and five, but I've determined it would be helpful for us to just concentrate on the fourth point that you have there in your outlines. That's what we're going to look at for the time that we have that remains. Having looked at the serpent's irreversible condemnation, his conspicuous degradation, and his implacable opposition, now in the fourth place, notice with me the serpent's limited realization. Now in verse 15, we read the end of the verse, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's obviously in this place a contrast between the head of the one being bruised and the heel of the other being bruised. And obviously the one is a fatal blow, it's of the head, the other is not a fatal blow, it's of the heel. The serpent will strike out at the seed of the woman, but the most he can do is bruise Christ's heel. There's only a limited realization, you see, of his enmity. Now the first question that presents itself, it pertains to how this word should be translated, bruise. In the original, the same word is used in both halves of the statement. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the New, America, the New International, it makes it look like there's two different words here. He will crush your head, it reads, and you will strike his heel. And this gives the impression that the death blow dealt with Satan is lethal because his head is crushed, whereas the blow dealt to Christ is non-lethal because it's only bruised. His heel's only bruised, that is. But here's just one of many instances in which the NIV does more interpreting than translating. and should just stick to translating. Because the same word is used in both halves of the, of the other statement. Bruise is a perfectly fine translation. It implies that a wound is suffered in both instances. Strike at would also be a good translation if you put it in both clauses. The original word is a strong word. It can even mean grind. Exodus 32.20, we read of Moses taking the golden calf and grinding it to powder. Same word. It can also be translated break or crush. Job 9.17, Job says of God, he breaks me with a tempest. Or as the New King James translates it, he crushes me with a tempest. Well, it can be translated in various ways, but it should be translated the same in both halves of the statement. And because it's used in both instances, this implies that there's something common to both sides in this war. Both sides will suffer injury, pain, 
difficulty, and the like. Each side in conflict wounds the other. But this doesn't mean that the ultimate outcome is the same in both cases. Our text it does not it doesn't picture a battle to a stalemate. And even though both sides should be translated bruise or strike at or crush, there's a difference in what it is that is bruised or crushed. In one instance, it's the head that the serpent suffers. A, it's in his head that he suffers a crushing blow. And it's only in the heel, you see, of the seed of the woman that is injured. And just as a serpent cannot strike at a man's head, but has to wound him in his leg or in his foot, Satan is only able to sink his fangs, you see, into the lower, non-vital part of our Lord. He is only able to strike at the lower part of his being, his, his, his human nature. He is able only to crush, to, to, as it were, or to bruise his heel. He's not able to crush Jesus' head. And the poison that he injects into the heel is not immediately fatal. And it's utterly curable. It's not something in utterly, be, in, utterly incurable. But this doesn't mean that Christ didn't suffer. Throughout his life, the Lord's heel was bruised. And during his time among us, in his human nature, he suffered frequently. And he often suffered grievously. But the great battle was reserved for the end. And so I'm not going to comment so much on all the ways in which Satan caused difficulty and trouble for Jesus throughout his whole ministry. But the great battle took place at the end when in soul and body, his whole human nature experienced excruciating and prolonged agony and pain. Now let me just tell you the story of what happened at the end. The great conflict, it seems, began in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just as Adam's disobedience in the Garden plunged all the race into ruin, Jesus' obedience in the Garden was essential for our salvation. And just as Satan enticed Eve in the Garden, he began his most brutal assaults on Christ in the Garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Satan's temptations in the wilderness they were not his last assaults on Christ. They were a foretaste of what would come. In Matthew 4, after Christ said, Away with you, Satan, we read that Satan left him. And in the account of Luke chapter 4, we are told that Satan left him for a season, which is, it gives us a hint that this was not the end of his battle with Jesus. He was just going to withdraw for a season. He was going to look for a better opportunity. And this implies he would return. Well, when did he return? Well, in part, it seems he returned when Peter became his mouthpiece in, in Matthew 16, as Peter sought to dissuade Jesus from suffering the death of the cross. But Satan's supreme assaults were reserved for the end. Now, in Christ's last discourse with his disciples, we know this because he says in John 14.30, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Jesus is anticipating a great battle, a great temptation, a great time when Satan is going to try to assault him and win this time. He would assault him with all that he had. But none of, of Satan's shafts, none of them would find any lodging in Christ's heart. He will find nothing in me. 
Nothing in my soul to draw me to sin and to disobey my father. There was nothing in Christ's heart that Satan could lay hold of to drag Jesus into disobedience. He might bruise Christ's heel, but he's not able to touch his head. And as Satan enticed Adam and Eve to disobey God in the garden, it's likely that his worst assaults against Jesus also began in the garden. Well, what were these assaults? We don't know all the details of what he said. But we have some hints from what he did in the wilderness. And Satan, he kind of remanufactures his assaults upon us and he perfects them over the years. And I think we have some hints as to what might have taken place at the end. For instance, in the wilderness, Satan assailed Christ's humanity. He began with the issue of Jesus' hunger. You remember the temptation? You just independently take these stones and make yourself some bread. The whole point was to put a wedge between him and the care of his heavenly father. And he preyed upon Jesus' hunger, his human hunger. And even so in the garden, Satan may have sought to assail the Lord Jesus with fear that his strength would not be sufficient. Hebrews 5 tells us that our Lord, he was heard and that he feared. And no doubt this refers to his fear of God, but it's also likely that this fear of God overpowered the other kind of fear, the fear of coming suffering that would have been perfectly natural to his human nature. It is also said that after the trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, an angel was sent to strengthen Jesus. And this suggests an agony over the coming conflict that was looming over his head and in his mind. An agony that was so overwhelming that when the agony subsided in his humanity, he was utterly sapped of physical strength. Can you imagine then what this foul fiend would whisper in Jesus' ear? Look at you. You're already writhing in anguish at the prospect of this trial. How do you think you're going to be able to endure being spitten by God himself? How will you be able to endure the mockery, the reproach of men? The reproach has broken your heart already. How will you be able to bear being publicly put to shame and being driven out of the city as an unclean thing? How will you be able to bear seeing your loved ones weeping all around you and your broken-hearted mother standing nearby? Your tender spirit it's going to quail under this trial. And as for your body, look how it's so emaciated already. Your long fasts have made you very low. Surely you will become prey before the work is done. There's no way you will be able to endure to the end. And then the devil would perhaps depict the sufferings of the coming crucifixion. And he always quotes scripture, you know. And he would quote, perhaps, can your heart endure? Or can your hearts be strong in the day when the Lord shall deal with you? And his temptation, no doubt, they were not directed, you see, at the Godhood of Jesus, but at his humanity. Can't you just hear, as it were, Satan say, how will you be able to bear up when the storm clouds of divine wrath envelop you? The tempest, it's going to make a shipwreck of all of your hopes. Look at you now. How do you think you're going to be able to prevail? Look at your sleeping disciples. How are you going to deliver them out of my hand? These ones are mine now. I'm going to take them from you. There have been many people already 
They've entered heaven in the anticipation of what you're going to do. I'm going to drag them all from that place. Just like the angels that fell when I fell, every one of them, they're going to fall as well. And now that the shepherd is being smitten, they too will be scattered. Don't deceive yourself with vain hopes. You'll never see the travail of your soul and be dissatisfied. These miserable disciples, they're about to desert you in the hour of need. Can't you see what's happening here? They're lost. They're mine already. How can you, puny and weak as you are, take them out of my hands? We don't know the exact words he would have used. But perhaps with such words, he assailed Christ's humanity as he did in the wilderness. In the wilderness, Satan also sought to impugn the fatherly care of Christ's father. And now, no doubt, he would set upon him and drive the point home, he's being forsaken by God. And I don't know if there's any greater soul-crushing trial than the feeling of being utterly forsaken by God. Look, he says, you don't look like one that's being cared for by God. Nobody cares for your soul, not even God. Look up to heaven, what do you see there? The Father has shut up his bowels of compassion. What are the angels doing? Are you seeing the angels that he sent to help you? They're not here. Isn't heaven itself arrayed against you? Look everywhere around you. Don't you see all these disciples that have forsaken you? They're all asleep. You have nobody in heaven or earth that cares for your soul. And furthermore, I have stirred up all hell against you. I've sent my messengers throughout my broad domains, and I've summoned all the princes of darkness to set upon you tonight. We will use our combined strength upon you, and we will overwhelm you. Oh, forsaken one, what will you do? And then in the wilderness, Satan sought to get Christ to leave his work unfinished. Remember how Satan showed Jesus the kingdoms of the world and how he said, all it's just going to take is a little genuflection, a little act of worship, and this whole kingdom is going to be yours. You don't have to go through the cross and all this hard stuff. It could be yours so much easily, so much easier. And perhaps in the garden he said, therefore look at you, sweating great drops of blood, just thinking about what has to be done. How will you endure it then when God's actual assaults, his actual wrath falls upon you? What will you do when its fury comes on you? And what what are you going to gain as a result of it all? Look at those miscreants you're trying to suffer for. When you need them most, they're all asleep. They're no help to you. Why do you even want to save these people? Even your trusted treasure, he's off to meet with the priests to, to betray you for the price of a slave. And you... Why would you go through such trouble for such worthless people? I have an easier way. I can give you a kingdom in a different way. However it was that Satan assaulted Jesus, we don't know. But whatever assaults he used, Satan at that time, he sought to bruise Christ's heel. And no small part of Jesus' sufferings were spiritual in nature. And we know that one of Satan's great methods is the method of seeking to bring one's soul to despair. But for the most part, the spiritual battle that took place in the garden, it's not been revealed to us in its details. I've given you some imaginary statements, perhaps, and I think it's helpful 
although we can't make gospel out of it, but it's helpful to put herself in the place of what's happening in this way. But let me also add that it's likely that Satan also assaulted Christ at the time of his betrayal. And we're specifically told in the gospel narratives that Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ, Luke 22, 3. This was to touch a tender spot in Jesus. What exquisite pain it must have been, how it must have bruised his heel, to have the, one of these ones whom he taught, one who had eaten with him, one whom he walked with for three years, to have that one betray him with an ostentatious expression of affection. It was the blackest treason ever. It was a deep wound. And by this strike that Satan inspired, Jesus felt the pain of his fangs sinking into his heel. Yea, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You will also remember how at that time the rest of Jesus' disciples all fled from him. And can't you imagine Satan whispering in his, in his ear at that point, look at those miserable wretches. Are you going to bleed? Are you going to die? Are you going to go through the hell of hells for these ingrates? Is that what you're going to do? Why don't you just leave them to their damnation? In a moment, you can make another world. The kingdom will be yours in a moment. It's an easier way. Why would you go through this for these ones? Now, whether or not Satan said these things to Jesus, betrayal of Judas and the desertion of his disciples must have deeply pierced Jesus' heel. And then this betrayal, it was followed by his arrest. In Luke chapter 22, verses 52 and 53, we read, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. And then listen to these words. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And in that profound statement, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus, no doubt, is speaking of the powers of Satan and all of his dark forces being unleashed against him. You've been given this hour, he says in effect. This is a supremely an hour of darkness. And at that moment, he was delivered into the hands of sinners, the seed of the serpent, to do with him whatever they wished. And if Satan was the direct agent of the spiritual assaults of that hour, Satan's earthly seed were the serpent's hands and feet, as it were, to inflict suffering upon our Savior. They were his hands and feet to do his hellish work. And from this point on, everything in the narrative that we read, it points to the hideous fiends of hell directing it all. It was the hour and power of darkness. As Moffat puts it, this is your hour and the dark power has its sway. And in this hour, Satan and his forces, they were permitted, you see, by God to do their worst. And out of the thousands of years of human history, this, above all other hours, was Satan's hour and the hour of darkness. God gave it to him. Darkness such as the world has never seen before or ever since. 
And in this dread hour, Satan had free reign. This is a remarkable statement. God, you remember, limited what Satan could do to Job. You can do this and no more. But he didn't do that with Satan now. He was free to do his worst. And he did. He had his day. The old serpent called the devil and Satan uncoiled himself, bared his fangs, and struck again and again with all of his venom. The arrest was then followed by a series of trials. And throughout those trials, Satan's presence was pervasive. Those that presided over the trials, they agreed that Jesus was a blasphemer who deserved to die. And it didn't matter how they accomplished their dark purpose. If necessary, let's get some false witnesses. So they recruit false witnesses. And after these devil-inspired false witnesses accomplished their satanic mission, Jesus was then condemned to death. And then we read something that makes our hair stand up on end. Then they spat upon his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one that struck you? Frederick Leahy observes, To sentence someone to death is an awesome responsibility. One does not expect the judges who have passed such a sentence will almost immediately turn to revelry and frivolity. They should be burdened men. A solemn silence should pervade the courtroom. There should be a profound awareness of the majesty of the law. It is with undisguised horror, then, that one views the monstrous spectacle in the courtyard of the high priest's palace on that momentous night. It was then that Israel's judges disgraced themselves. Scarcely had proceedings ended before their eminences threw all restraint aside and indulged in an unholy orgy of vicious abuse of their prisoner. Christ became the butt of the most diabolical mockery. This is what Satan inspired. And these religious leaders, assisted by the officers and the soldiers, they all gathered around in fiendish glee that they might pour their hellish contempt on the one they regarded as a worthless fraud. And now they're going to have some fun. And here on full display is hell's entertainment. They spit in his face, a symbol of Jewish disdain. They strike him, buffeting him with their fists and slapping him with their hands. Another token of contempt, as the Sermon on the Mount tells us. And his face ended up being so bruised and swollen by this rain of heavy blows upon it that Isaiah 52 tells us his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. His disfigurement, so great, he no longer looked like a man. Many who saw it, Isaiah says, were astonished. And this isn't the only time he's ridiculed this way. First of all, he was mocked by Israel in the court of the high priest, and then by the pagan world in Pilate's court, and then by the descendant of Edom in Herod's court, and last of all, by those that surrounded the cross. And again and again, he's made the butt of hell's entertainment. He's painfully bruised, you see, by Satan and his minions. 
and standing in our place, let's remember, willingly and lovingly and silently, he adores the mockery and the defiance that Satan would have hurled at you and me. You and I would have had to take it. This is what he took in our behalf. And then as if this is not enough, they jam a crown of thorns on his head. They clothe him with a mock robe. They put a mock scepter in his hands. And then they rip it out of his hands and they strike his head. And after this Pilate, who's just declared him innocent, he nevertheless has him scourged. And at last he's brought out, and Pilate says, Behold the man. Pilate was a hardened man. You read any, you watch any movies of him, he's depicted as a hardened, uncompassionate man. But there was something about this that must have touched Pilate in some way. He thought that surely when they see this man, a little compassion would be there. But it wasn't to take place. He hoped in vain. The bloody sight only served to heighten their thirst for his blood. Hadn't he suffered enough? Not enough for the hatred of the serpent. And therefore, instead of expressions of compassion, all Pilate could hear is a repeated thunderous cry, repeated over and over again. Crucify! 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 The original the word hymn is not there. Crucify him. Simply this one word chant. Crucify. Crucify. They all chant it again and again. So in their hearts, their Satan-inspired hearts, nothing but the most painful, prolonged, shameful death will do. And at last these hell dogs lead him up the hill. And there on an accursed tree... His whole soul and body is made to writhe in agony. Enemies pierce his hands and his feet. The hellish mockery continues. Dear people, look on your master. Look on your king on the cross. He's all covered in blood and dust. There his heel is most cruelly bruised. But this brings us to some good news. I told you, this is gospel, and we're especially going to get to the gospel part in our next sermon, the fifth point. But here's some good news. This is all Satan could do. And this is why we've used this word that we've used, this wording that we've used for this fourth point, the serpent's limited realization. He crushed Christ's heel, but this is as far as he could go. He could not crush Christ's head. And even though his bodily life was taken away on the cross, his head, his mediatory power, it was not touched. And so in a few days, Peter stands up in front of the very ones that put Jesus to death. And he says, this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. In his sermon on this text, the Puritan Thomas Manton says this, Though Christ was bruised, yet he was not conquered. When the Jews and the Roman soldiers were spoiling him and parting his garments, then he was spoiling principalities and powers. And when Satan and his instruments were triumphing over the Son of God, he was triumphing over all the devils in hell. For by death, he destroyed him who had the power of death. Hallelujah. And this is good news, not only for Jesus, that this is all Satan can do, 
But it's good news for all of you who, by God's grace, have become the seed of the woman. You, too, can only be bruised in the heel, so to speak. Ever since Jesus returned to heaven as our conqueror, Satan and his minions, they can't lay hold of Jesus. So what do they do? They do the second best. They try to lay hold of Jesus' body, the church, the, the Christians, the seed of the woman that's here below. And so Satan and his seed, they seek to do the same to the seed of the woman that they did to Jesus as much as they can. Sometimes this, this results in overt attempts to destroy the seed through evil and through cruel and bloody means. As a congregation, we regularly read these reports from Voice of the Martyrs and from other such publications and pray for those that are suffering in this way. And sometimes we hear even, as in Nigeria, of whole, whole villages being massacred, those that profess the Lord Jesus. And on other occasions, we read, for instance, maybe of just one young man or one young woman being falsely accused of blasphemy against Muhammad and then being sentenced to death or else being killed by the mob. In our own country, we have laws that establish freedom of religion. So these outright slaughters don't seem to take place in the same way. We're generally protected from massacres and executions of this kind. But let's not be fooled. Our country's been turning away from God for well over 100 years. And the more God's people suffer, the more this takes place. The more our country turns away from God, the more God's people suffer in different other ways. And whether they are atheists, whether they are devoted to the religion of secularism, or whether they name the name of Christ but indeed are false religions, they are all actuated by the same lighter and the same guide, the devil. Jude 11 puts it succinctly, they have gone the way of Cain. They are part of Cain's unholy seed. And it shouldn't come as any surprise, therefore, when Christian parents that want to know what their children are being taught in school, they are being hated, they are being treated as if they are some of the most dangerous people in the world, they are labeled as terrorists and the like. We shouldn't be surprised when a Christian that's just praying at some distance from uh, an abortion center is arrested and jailed because of it. And likewise, when those who want their promiscuous lifestyle preserved, and when they protest any threat to their freedom to kill their children, we shouldn't be surprised when vitriol and hate comes out. We shouldn't be filled with dismay to see this. We should expect it. Satan is always going to try, you see, through his servants, to try to bruise the heel of the seed of the, of the woman. And if Satan's minions were filled with hateful glee over the suffering and the shame of Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised when the mainstream media does the same thing to Christians or people that adhere to Christian morality. If you watch the news much at all, these things can really get you down. But one of our comforts is this, all of their hatred, all even of their murderous hatred, it can only go so far. It can only bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Satan himself, he can go no further than bruising our heel. And some of the seed of the woman he casts into prison. Others he tortures, some he even puts to death. But even those whom he kills can only be hurt in their heels. Their souls are not conquered. They are more than conquerors through him who loved them. Satan cannot touch Christ, their glorious head. 
And because we are seated in heaven with this glorious head, because we have been raised together with this Lord Jesus, Satan and all of his minions cannot destroy us. The serpent's bruises go no further than wounding the heel. And therefore, let us learn to taunt the devil just like Spurgeon does. Make the best of it you can, Satan. It's not going to come to much. All that you are at your greatest is but a a heel nibbler and nothing more. Well, this epitomizes our fourth main point, the serpent's limited realization. There's even better news to come, but we're going to have to save it for our next sermon when we take up the serpent's ultimate mortification, which consists in the seed of the woman crushing his head. But I can't close without making one appeal to those of you that are still on the wrong side. You're not the seed of the woman at this point. You're not trusting in the Lord Jesus. You're not on his side. You're on the side of the one that's going to be destroyed. And though there may be some success, though it may seem like Christians in the minority, and they're increasingly so, even though that may seem like a losing proposition for you, know this, it's a very bad bet to try to join those that are the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Trust in him. Look to this one who bore such suffering that you might be delivered from the results of your sins and that you might forever reign with him in glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for the way in which our Savior endured to the end. We bless you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't listen to the lies of the devil. Whereas Eve and Adam listened, you did not. You rejected his false premises. You trusted in the Father. You looked to him for grace and for strength. And by the Spirit of God, you prevailed. And we bless you that even now you are the great conqueror. And someday we're going to see you not as one that is covered in shame, covered in blood and dust, but seated upon a throne, one that is reigning in majesty and glory forever and ever, one who not only can be seen with the eye of faith, but in that day even will be seen by our own physical eyes. Hasten that day, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. And even now we plead with you that you would be at work among those that are on the wrong side. Bring them to a saving faith, Lord Jesus, in you. And as you have invited all to come to you, you've said to them that him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. We pray that that word will be fulfilled in some heart here this very day. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.